I see a lot of people giving attention to their physical well-being. And that's, that's a good thing. Cindy and I got a membership this last year at Buck Run Community Center for their fitness room there. And we spend some of our time there. And I see a lot of other people there uh, doing the treadmill, doing the elliptical machine. They're riding the stationary bicycle. They're lifting weights. They're playing racquetball. They're doing all kinds of good activities to keep their heart and their bodies in physical condition. And that's good. Paul, in fact, said something to Timothy about that. Do you remember what he said? He he said, it is profitable a little bit to do that kind of stuff. But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In other words, if the only exercise that you are doing is physical exercise, then you're missing the boat. The physical is going to wear out, no matter how hard you try to keep that from happening. I read through the book of Psalms recently, and I don't know the number of times that that the writer of that book makes reference to our lives here on this earth being so temporary. We're like a puff of smoke, he said. We're like a vapor that that you see it for just a moment and then it's gone. We're like green grass that is there for a season and then the winter comes and it turns to brown. That's how our life is. It's very short-lived. And since that is true, it's very important that we give attention to more than just the physical. We need to give attention to the spiritual We need to give attention to that which is going to last forever. And perhaps that is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was instructing his listeners to give special attention to their heart. Don't just clean the outside of the dish. Rather, clean the inside of the dish and the outside will take care of itself. And so he begins his sermon, if you remember, by... Addressing the attitudes that a person is to have on the inside. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he said. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You may remember that means blessed is the one who understands that he can't muster up enough goodness from within himself. He needs God. He's someone who is empty of himself. That person is one who is going to inherit the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. In other words, blessed are those who understand that they have a sin problem. And they're broken over that sin. And they go to God and they ask Him to forgive Him. And God will comfort that person, Jesus said. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We we read through that list of Beatitudes and we see that Jesus has a recipe for happiness that is a whole lot different than what the world's recipe for happiness is. He even went so far as to say this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't ever think that Jesus was a softy in his preaching. He was very counter 
cultural. In other words, he wasn't preaching just to pat people on the back and make them feel good. He wasn't saying just what they wanted him to to say and what they wanted to hear. Rather, he was preaching to them the truth. And sometimes that truth stepped on their toes. and It was like a sharp sword that would go into the very depths of their heart. It was like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. It was like a fire, the prophet said. It's little wonder that the Pharisees didn't like Jesus' preaching. Because it was oftentimes aimed right at them. And it was exposing their hypocrisy. And as this sermon unfolds, Jesus compares the Pharisees' teaching on the law with his own teaching on the law. First of all, he addressed the subject of murder. Matthew 5, 21 and 22, he said, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to court. But I say to you that everyone who becomes angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. You see what he did there? He raised the bar. The focus was no longer just on the external act of murder. Instead, he put the focus on the motive behind the murder, which was anger. And that's what he did throughout this sermon. Jesus was concerned about what was happening on the inside of a person, not just the outside. He was concerned about the heart. And next, he addressed the subject of adultery, verses 27 and 28. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who even looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with him, with her already in his heart. And again, the focus went from the external to the internal. The sin of lust was just as much a sin in Jesus' mind as the physical act of adultery. And again, he is calling for each and every one of us to clean the inside of the dish first. For he knows if we clean the inside of the dish, then the outside will take care of itself. And I'm sure as Jesus went along in his preaching this sermon, the Pharisees that were sitting there listening to him were becoming more and more irate. Their blood was about to boil. And yet he was not finished with them yet. As we get into chapter 6 of Matthew, he begins to call attention to their hypocrisy. What he's saying is, is this, don't just be concerned about their teaching, but also be concerned about the way they live. Chapter 6, verse 1 of Matthew, he says this, beware practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. I want you to know Jesus hates hypocrisy. He hates it when we put on a mask and play like we're a Christian, but on the inside we're really not. He hates it when we live and talk one way on Sunday, but then from Monday through Saturday we live and talk an entirely different way. He hates it when we're after man's approval more than what we're after God's approval. 
I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 through 4, from the New International Version. It says this, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. I want to point out to you a phrase that you see there in that text that we just read. It appears twice in those three verses. Maybe you picked up on it. Jesus says this, when you give to the needy, you know, in Jesus' mind, there was never even a question of whether we were going to give or not. There, there was not that question of if you decide to give to the needy. No. Instead, in his mind, it was this. When you do give to the needy, make sure that your motive is right. And I think the wording there is important for us to notice. Jesus expects us to give. It is a characteristic of the person who is a part of his kingdom. We have been given much to us. Why wouldn't we be a giving person in return? He has poured his blessings upon us to the point of overflowing. And so why would we hoard those blessings and not share them? A person of the kingdom is one who is giving. He's generous. You know what I have found through the years being one of his followers? I have found this to be true. You cannot outgive God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All the gold in the world, all the silver in the world has his name on it. It's his. Psalms 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. It's all his already. Luke 6, 38 says, in fact, this is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's a parallel passage of what we've been looking at these last few weeks in Matthew's account. And Luke says this, Give, and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. You give, he gives back. And God always has a bigger bucket than what you have. I was talking just recently on the phone with one of our newest members. He and his wife had been through a, a Bible study with me. And, and the last study that we had together was talking about, okay, now that you've become a Christian, what's God expect of you? And a in that study, we, we talked about the need to be faithful to church, and we talked about the need to, to uh, witness, and we talked about the need to encourage uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we talked about the need of worship, and we also talked about the need to give. God wants us to give back to Him. And I said to this young couple, you cannot outgive God, and I dare you to try. And I shared with them testimony in my own life of times of, of just giving to God. And God, you just cannot outgive God. And I encourage them to try that. 
to tithe of their income and to give to him and to just let God prove his faithfulness to you. And they went home and they talked about that, he said to me over the phone. And they decided they were going to try to tithe. And uh, he said, you know, it, it wasn't easy because we had places that we needed that money, but we decided we would do that. That's what God wanted us to do. We'll do it. And he said, Kevin, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. The first Sunday, we tithed. And within a few days, there was a check that came to us in the mail, totally unexpected. And I said, yeah, I, I'm not surprised about that. It's, it's just God's way. You cannot outgive God. I dare you to try. Cindy and I just recently gave a pretty substantial gift to a work of God that we are supportive of. And I will tell you, in a matter of three weeks, almost 90% of what we gave has come back to us from unexpected resources. And I'm not talking about insurance money on the house from the damage of the hailstorm. I'm talking about other totally unexpected sources. Well, let me say this. Is that why we give? Do we give so that we will be given back to? No. Not at all. I mean, this whole section here in Matthew 6, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the whole section here is about motives. We don't give so that God will give back to us. That would be a very selfish motive in giving. We give because we love Him. We give because... He's given to us and He is overflowing His goodness to us. And so we just give back to Him and to those who are in need because He's faithful to us. We want to be faithful to Him. Now obviously some can give more than others. And that's what Paul was getting at in 1 Corinthians 16 too, where he said that we give as the Lord has prospered us. The New International Version says it this way, that we give in keeping with our income. In other words, the person who, get, who receives more, the person who makes more, should give more. And the one who makes less should give less. As he has prospered us, the scripture says, we give accordingly. But all of us should give something. Jesus said here in his sermon, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the street corners to be honored by men. And there is another caution given to us about our motive for giving. We don't give to be noticed by men or to be praised by them. And I'm guessing the Pharisees made a pretty good show out of their giving. Just you read it here. You read the history the commentaries on these passages, as they gave, they're blowing trumpets, they're ringing bells. One commentary I read talked about how they took their coins and they clanked them one by one into the offering plates so that there would be a, a great noise made. And, and they're, they're looking around, I'm sure, and seeing who's watching them as they're dropping their coins, as they're clanking their coins into the offering. They're giving to be noticed by men. 
And Jesus says, don't do that. You give privately. You give without a show. You give with no strings attached that will put your name in the spotlight. And if you, if you do give that way, if you're giving to be noticed by men, Jesus says that's all the reward you're going to get. And the bottom line is simply this. Be careful with your motive for giving. Let me read to you from Mark Moore's writing about this very topic. Jesus is not speaking against financial accountability or keeping track of your benevolence for budgetary purposes. Perhaps closer to Jesus' words would be plaques with donors' names. wanted to buy all new hymn books for us if, if we would put her husband's name on the cover of the hymn book. You know, in memory of, and his name was to be listed on every hymn book. Our board talked about that. It was quite a substantial gift that she was offering to the church. But our board talked about that. They chose not to go that route. Didn't want an individual's name honored in that way. Didn't think it was right. We aren't about just individuals. We're about him. And she chose then to withdraw her offer of money. You know, it made you wonder about the motive. I don't mean to stand in judgment of her. She's dead and gone and been gone a long time. God is the judge but we do need to be careful that we're not giving to get our name in the limelight. Does that mean all of our giving has to be kept a secret? You know, I remember uh, a while back, my folks gave a very substantial gift to Ozark Christian College. And later, after that gift was given, an article came out in a school paper that was mailed all over the country. Uh, telling about this gift and, and it had their picture there beside the article. That's how I found out about the gift. I read it in the school compass and I thought, there goes my inheritance. <laughs> they just gave my inheritance away to the school. <laughs> and I was okay with that, really. It, I, I, in fact, I commended them. I just was hoping they hadn't given all my inheritance away. But my folks did not give that gift with the stipulation that an article be written about them. The school called them and asked permission to write the article in hopes that their giving would inspire somebody else to give a gift like that from their stock or their estate that wasn't the, the stock that wasn't being used that's just sitting there or the estate that somebody else might be encouraged to give that kind of gift in fact we did the same thing here when John Holmes left a sizable gift to the church 
through his estate. After he was dead and gone, we wrote an article about John's generosity in hopes that it would inspire someone else to think about giving an estate gift to the church after they're gone. You know, it wasn't to blow a trumpet and give John glory. You know, John was already in his glory. He was in heaven. He was receiving his glory already from God. We're just wanting to use his example of generosity to inspire someone else to be generous. Again, Jesus, what he's doing here in this text is saying, just be careful with your motives in your giving. And next he addresses the subject of prayer. Matthew 6, verses 5 through 8. Let me read it to you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they will be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they will suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Well, does this mean that that Jesus is against public prayers? No. I mean, there's plenty of evidence in the book of Acts for public prayers. What he's telling us is, be careful with your motives when you pray. Make sure that you're not being... that you're not praying to be seen and heard by men. Be careful about praying long, flowery prayers with the hopes that that you're going to impress people with how connected you are with the Father. You know, the Pharisees were great about this. They they were great about praying long prayers, and they loved to to be up front and, and pray in front of people and visible to people as they prayed. Because they're thinking that, that as they're praying, then people are going to be thinking, Oh my, what a spiritual man he is. We may be able to fool men, but we can't fool God. He knows how our motives and our sincerity or the lack thereof. And so in this context of talking about prayer, Jesus then gives to us a model prayer. And the model prayer is not necessarily a prayer that we are supposed to pray verbatim. Rather, it's a prayer teaching us how to pray. Our Father is how that prayer starts out. We can have an intimate relationship with God through Jesus, where He is our Father. The Greek word is Abba. It means Daddy. I mean, you talk about an intimate relationship with God that we can have through Jesus. I listened to Mark Moore's classroom lecture on the internet over this passage, and I was thinking, you know, I'm going to see what Mark has to say about all of this. He hardly touched the text that day. 
You know what he talked about to those college students? He's saying, God is one who wants to be your father. And your self-esteem should be based in that. That the most significant one in the world looks at you with significance. He's your father. And sometimes it's true, our our earthly father doesn't give us much reason for self-esteem. But he's saying to those college students, and I'll say the same to each and every one of you, no matter what age you are, is that your self-esteem can be centered in the fact that the most significant person in the world, God, looks at you with significance. He's your father. And that's a good way to start one's prayer. Father, holy, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. We're starting our prayer with praise. And what a good way to start our prayer time is to to praise him. We're lifting his name up above every other name. And we are exalting him above every other God. I will tell you from personal experience through the years that if you give attention to praise in your prayer time, it will do wonders for you in your spiritual life. He went on to say this, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you pray for God's kingdom to come? You should. I should. Do we pray for his will to be done here as it is there in heaven? We should. We are asking that his reign and his purpose and his plans would be completely realized here as they are there in heaven. That's quite a prayer to pray. God, may your will be done here in my life and on this earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. It's okay for us to ask for our daily needs. Jesus is teaching us this in this model prayer. He's he's teaching us God is our provider. And and we should not hesitate to ask him to, to provide our daily bread, our needs. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And so as we pray to God, there should be a time in that prayer that we confess our sins to God. That we ask him to forgive us. But don't neglect to hear the words of Jesus. If you expect to receive forgiveness from him, then you better be extending forgiveness to those who have offended you. Verses 14 and 15 says this. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men for their transgressions, then your Father will not forgive you. You want forgiveness? Then be a forgiver of those who have transgressed against you. Verse 13. Let me read that to you. In fact, it's on the board here. Do not lead us into temptation, 
But deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus started his prayer with praise, and he ended his prayer with praise. And amidst that prayer, he is praying for help amidst the spiritual battle that he's in. And that's something all of us should do. God, help. Help me in my battle against the evil one. Oh, by the way, did you notice the phrase in these few verses that's repeated over and over again? It's repeated three times. Jesus says this, when you pray, this is how you're to pray. This is how you're not to pray. When you pray. It never even entered his mind that his children wouldn't want to talk to the Heavenly Father. He didn't say, if you decide to pray, he said, when you pray, this is how you're to do it. He expected us to pray. And if we want a relationship with the Father, we should pray. But our time in prayer is not to be for a show, it's to be sincere. It's not to impress people, but maybe it will inspire people. My kids, through the years, I think probably each of them at one time or another, more than once, have said something about their memory of dad praying. They'd get up in the morning as they were in school age, they'd get up to go to school and they'd see dad praying. I didn't do that for a show to my kids. I was just spending time with the Father. But I think as my kids got up and saw that, it was etched into their mind. And maybe I hope, I pray, that it has inspired them to be people of prayer too. We don't pray to put on a show. But as we pray, maybe, moms and dads, it will inspire our kids to pray. And I I think probably more of our young kids need to see their moms and their dads being people of prayer. And very briefly, Jesus went from talking about giving and praying to talking about fasting. Let me read to you there from chapter 6. And you realize there were no chapter divisions when Matthew wrote this. He didn't write it in, okay, now chapter 6. He didn't write, there were no verse divisions in his writing. All of that came later just for our benefit. And so this whole sermon just flows from one point to the next. He's talking about This is what the Pharisees have said about the law, but here is what I have to say about the law. And then he he flows from that to talking about, this is what they're saying and doing, but be careful with their hypocrisy. Be sincere. Have your motives right. 
And so what's he have to say about fasting? Verses 16 through 18. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that when so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And just like in the previous verses with giving and with praying, Twice here, Jesus says, whenever you fast, as though there were no question in his mind as to whether we would or wouldn't, that it was just something his children would do. He says, when you do fast, this is how you do it. And for a lot of folks, I'm afraid the only time that they ever fast is when they have to medically. The doctor says, I want to run a test and you can't eat. I want to, I'm going to do surgery on you so you can't eat from here to here. And so we do that. We obey the doctor's instructions because of the, the medical reasons. But unfortunately, if that's the only time you ever fast, you're missing something. You look at scripture, it seems that fasting was a spiritual discipline that God's people participated in. And it was always connected with prayer. It was fasting and praying over over our, our brokenness of sin in our own life. It was fasting and praying over the brokenness of sin in our nation's life. And we don't fast to be seen by men and exalted by them. Our fasting is between us and God. And Mark Moore writes this. This does not mean that no one will ever know we are fasting. For instance, it would be hard to hide the fact from a spouse. What it does mean is that we don't go around announcing it. You can either impress people or God. Take your pick. The whole of this discussion can be summed up in this question. Who's your primary audience? It is simply not possible nor always advisable to practice all our piety in secret. People watch. They see what we do. But are they the ones you play for? Or do you keep practicing your piety when no human eye can see? That is the measure of a true citizen of the kingdom. Do you you get that last part there? When no one is watching you, are you still doing what God would call you to do? Are you praying? Are you giving? Are you fasting? Or are those things, things you do just when eyes are on you? Now, I could say a lot more about fasting, but our time has passed. I'll close with just a few questions. What if we as individuals fasted for the lost to be saved? You think that would get God's attention? What if we as parents fasted for our kids to be spiritually strong and that God would lead them to the right Christian mate to marry? You think that would... Do some good? 
I think it would get God's attention for sure. What if you fasted and prayed for your church, for your preacher, for your ministerial staff? What if you prayed that God would do a great thing through this body of believers? Sometimes it's a whole lot easier to be critical than it is to be prayerful and fasting. What if you prayed and fasted for your brother-in-law who has cancer? Think God might do a miracle for him? You know, it's not guaranteed, but I wonder if it'd make a difference. You'll never know until you try, but I do know this. If you do this sincerely, if you fast and pray sincerely, it will make a difference in you. You will never be the same again. And that will be a good thing. Let's pray together. God, help us to be your people, your citizens of the kingdom, who are filled with sincerity and who do what we do because of you, not for a show. Forgive us of our hypocrisy. In Jesus' name, amen.